Hi, Natalie. Hi, Tara. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I feel like you could hear the Wednesday in that greeting. <sighs> yeah. I am struggling to get over the hump. Yeah. That is for sure. But at least we have a pretty cool place to, you know, spend our time during the day. That's true. Oh, hi. How are you? Welcome to the store. Welcome. I'm Tara. I'm Natalie. Let us know if you need anything. So yeah, recently we talked about something. I don't remember what it was, but oh, it might have been one of your new to you songs. And it was kind of like a newish vaporwave type song. Oh yeah, it was uh, the group uh, Death's Dynamic Shroud. Yeah, you're pretty into vaporwave stuff, aren't you? Yeah, I dig it. I like it. My favorite being uh, La Cassette. It's another group I really like. I think it's like the popularity of, you know, shows like Stranger Things that are kind of bringing that vibe back. That 80 sound and synth sounds that the that whole music genre is kind of having this resurgence lately. Yeah. Oh, hey, look who it is. It's Carlos Andujar, a.k.a. Navigator. Cool. Hello, hello. What's up? How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for coming into the store. Are you picking up anything special? Um, just looking around today. Um, you have a great, great store here. Thank you. <laughs> It's funny that you just walked in at this perfect time because we were just talking about vaporwave, synth music, very much the whole like 80s synth stuff, Stranger Things. And you are a producer, musician, and and kind of lean into a lot of that synth type vaporwave stuff, don't you? I do. Yeah, I, I was over in the uh, New Age section, and I, did I overhear somebody say uh, Dust Dynamic Shroud? You heard me. Oh, indeed. man. I just saw them play in uh, in New York, and it was oh, really? unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I highly recommend going to watch them if you get a chance. Really, really amazing live show. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorites, I guess, of that genre is Calm Trues. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, yeah, it is. I mean, when you listen to Calm Trues, you almost immediately see maybe like the HBO logo from the 80s just like bouncing and like all the lasers and oh, things yeah. coming off the H. And yeah, I, I just imagine like VHS or old movie yeah. production companies names like floating and lasers everywhere. I don't know why. Yeah. That's what I imagine. Well, I, I mean, it's pretty close to his like visual brand too. He's also a designer, you know oh. that, but uh, yeah, he worked in like the pharmaceutical industry, I think, as a designer. And like his whole aesthetic is very much kind of in line with that too. So he's got the whole brand nailed. I feel like with the eighties aesthetic. Yeah. yeah, he totally does. I didn't know that he was a designer though, which yeah. totally makes sense because all of his 
like album art and, and whatnot yeah. is so impeccably designed and fits his aesthetic so much. Yeah, definitely. Which is also kind of related to Vaporwave. I feel like this whole idea of aesthetic, you know. <laughs> the whole the nostalgia. It, yeah. They, they yeah. go hand in hand for sure with the, the Vaporwave stuff. Yeah. But Stranger Things really, I think, was a big player in how some of that retro popular culture had a huge comeback. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think you're right. Like I, I'm trying to pinpoint a, a time of when like this all started to resurge. And from what I can recall, I feel like this all started even further back. Like like in twenty ten seems to be this sort of like Oh yeah. I don't know, like uh awakening or consciousness of hey, we like the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like at least that's how it happened for me. And I feel like, yeah, you're right, like shows like Stranger Things, um, even like, you know, Halt Halt and Catch Fire to some extent. And there's even some movies like Beyond the Black Rainbow, a few other kind of like stuff on like shows and movies on TVs that that kind of like caught on as well and like dug into like the 80s aesthetic. But yeah, I feel like for me, I've, I think that my recollection is like the 2010, 2011 era is yeah. like when it started kind of like popping off. And there's a few artists in particular that I can point to and say like they kind of helped popularize that. I don't know if you want me to get into that now or. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, I guess what I was thinking of Stranger Things, I meant more like in the mainstream, but mm. I 100% agree because there was like games and I even remember Calvin uh, Harris had a song about liking the 80s and um, it did go quite hand in hand with some of the like indie dance yeah. uh, type stuff that was out at the time. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. That's a good point. Um, even like Daft Punk to some extent, I feel ha- has some of that, less of the aesthetic side, obviously, but like more of just like the 80s vibe a little bit in a lot of their, like on, I feel like on homework. Oh, that's true. And also they did Random Access Memories right. and Tron, which had, yeah. well, of course, obviously Tron mm. is. Totally. Is that. Totally. <laughs> essentially. I, I even feel like there was a point around, again, like 2011, maybe 2012, where you guys remember C uh, Punk? <laughs> that like sort of like variation of uh of uh it's like a subgenre of vaporwave almost it had its own kind of aesthetic too but there was a moment where rihanna was playing this show on tv and she had these like c-punk visuals in the background i was like okay this is crazy now we're sort of like starting to hit the mainstream with like the vaporwave stuff but yeah i feel like oh, yeah yeah i wish i could remember the performance but um, diamonds yeah on saturday night live <laughs> yeah. 2012 yeah yeah 2012. Okay, so it was, I was it was pretty close. But yeah, that's it's interesting to see how it's caught on even more now with like the the 80s aesthetic, become even more popular on the on um like the mainstream uh, media. I feel like I think the I think that kind of music and the vaporwave thing it's going to always have a presence in popular culture and in the media because even if the music isn't always at the forefront. I think those nostalgic movies or those really influential sci-fi movies like Blade Runner and Tron, like you mentioned, those are just, they're going to be timeless. They're always going to look cool. You know, they're never going to go out of style. So I think, I think that's always like the bridge between the cultures, totally, the subculture and, you know, the mainstream to appreciate Vaporwave. So, yeah, that's a good point. I feel like a lot of younger people are just starting to discover that stuff. Like I kind of grew up with a lot of that stuff. And for me, like when I was a kid, I kind of hated the eighties music, but now I don't know what clicked like like a a switch flip and like, Oh, this is so amazing. What was, what was I thinking? But I think, I feel like a lot of younger people are like just discovering it and like kind of more organically appreciating it um, for, for what it is. So that's kind of cool to see. Yeah. 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 Uh, slightly related, I did pre-order a Trapper Keeper 
they just relaunched them. Are you serious? I got one with yes, I got one with like the like many layered heart. Oh my god! On the front, it hasn't arrived yet. Um, I hope I didn't get swindled, but <laughs> it was by Mead, the brand. Oh wow! Trapper brand. So wow. Google it. Wow. Pre-order your Trapper Keeper today. There are many styles to choose from. That's so crazy. It's really hard to choose. Amazing. Do they have a Jim and the Holograms one? Then I'm I'm all yeah. over it. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Well, like I said, I'm glad you're in the store today. Usually when we have friends in the store, we like to play the high fidelity game where we list our top five, something music related. Would you want to play with us today? Sure. Yeah. Sounds great. How about, I don't know, top five comeback albums? Ooh, <laughs> that's a tough one, but I think I can help. I bet you thought we were going to say top five vaporwave. <laughs> Well, it makes sense, you know, come back of the 80s and since, come back albums. Yeah. I can see the connection. Yeah. Well, you guys have time to think through yours because I already have the list. So I will we'll kick it off. All right. How about it? All right. So I'm going to start number five um, with an album that was released in 1989 by our boy Roy Orbison. <laughs> This is the album Mystery Girl. It's his 22nd album. But everyone knows Roy Orbison. If you don't, you need to go and read a book and touch some grass. He's a legend. (laughs) But it was his last album to be recorded during his entire lifetime. He was known for his singing style. He was a singer, songwriter, musician. He had emotional ballads. Sometimes they're a little dark. And he was originally signed by Sam Phillips from Sun Records in 1956, just like our boy Elvis Presley. But he had his biggest success with Monument Records. And from 1960 to 1966, he had 22 singles that reached the Billboard Top 40. So hits like Only the Lonely from 1960, Running Scared from 1961, Crying from 1961, In Dreams 1963, and of course, the one we all know, Oh Pretty Woman from 1964. But in the late 60s, his career started to decline. He had kind of personal traumas, some uh, drama, actually. His wife cheated on him with the person who built their house. And also he had some major health issues, but he kept recording albums. By 1976, he had a full decade since any of his songs charted, which is a bummer. I would definitely feel like throwing in the towel at that point if I were him. But he was doing some side projects in the 80s that kind of started his uh, his career in motion again. One notable side project happened in 1988 where Roy Orbison started collaborating with ELO band leader, Electric Light Orchestra, Jeff Lynne on a new album. And, and Jeff had just completed working some production on George Harrison's album, Cloud Nine. And then all three of them got together one day and had some lunch. And Roy accepted an invitation to sing on George Harrison's new single. Then they reached out to Bob Dylan, who was like, hey, yeah, you want to use my studio? That's cool. So along the way, Harrison stopped by Tom Petty's house to pick up a guitar. And 
Tom Petty and his band backed Dylan on his last tour, but by the evening, the group of fellas had written a song which became the concept of a whole album, and they called themselves the Traveling Wilburys. Um, and that album was released in 1988. But that's not the comeback album that I'm referring to, of course not. But this is the one that sort of made him feel motivated to do another solo album. So, and that album was, of course, like I mentioned earlier, Mystery Girl, and was his first album of all new material since 1979. Long time since uh, his last full-length solo album. But is produced by Jeff Lynne in uh, 1989 and released in 1989. And then the biggest hit for Mystery Girl was You Got It. And it earned him a Grammy Award. Sadly, he was having some health issues and he died before the record was actually released. So technically it was a posthumous album, but yeah, it, it, it was huge. He got a Grammy, it hit the charts, it was meticulous and perfect in production. On top of that, also the Traveling Wilburys album that he recorded before that also charted. So he really hit it. Right there well, at the end of his life. Um, and Rolling Stone included it as one of the top albums of the top 100 albums of the decade. But one last note is that Roy Orbison became the first deceased musician since Elvis Presley to have two albums in the top five at the same time. That's an interesting bit of trivia. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So sad. Yeah. Man, it he is. had a really he was so young. Rough he was life. like, what, like 50, early 50s, 52? Was he? I don't know. When he passed away. He was young, though. He, was he? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> young in there, though. Best he could. Yeah. He did a lot of great stuff there at the end, and I'm glad that he found some success. Yeah. I feel like... More success. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably give up after, <laughs> like, way way earlier. <laughs> yeah. You know, without having even had a fraction of that success. Yeah. But he's a, he's a legend. I, and even reading about the Traveling Wilburys, Jeff Lynn, of course, Electric uh, Light Orchestra, all of them were kind of just in awe that they were in the same room with Roy Orbison, but like all of them are legendary too. And so it's just like, wow, those people, those guys who are legends are like, wow, Roy Orbison. So he's, he had, he left quite a legacy, but that was a pretty epic comeback to have two records in the top five at one time. Yeah, definitely. Seriously. All right. Number four, speaking of our boy Elvis Presley. From Elvis in Memphis, 1969. This was Elvis's 10th studio album, and it was actually triggered by another kind of special event, similar to Roy's story. So... After Elvis returned from the military in the 60s, his manager, Tom Parker, he started to make Elvis switch his career from live music and albums to films and soundtracks. And I think that worked well for him for a little bit. In 1961, performed his last show, which would be his last show for eight years, in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. But during that, three of Elvis's soundtrack albums reached number one in the pop charts and Included some hits like Can't Help Falling in Love, Return to Cinder, which we all have heard a million times. But from 1964 to 1968, he only had one top hit, and it was Crying in the Chapel, which is a gospel song that he put on a gospel record recorded in 1967. He did win a Grammy for that, but 
1968, his manager arranged for him to have this TV special, it was supposed to be a Christmas special, to be filmed in front of a live audience. And he had planned for Elvis to sing all Christmas songs, but the show's producer, Steve Binder, convinced Elvis to perform some songs from his original repertoire. The show's closer, the producer decided to replace the spoken statement with a song, and he told one of the music directors and a lyricist to write a song that reflected Elvis's beliefs because around the same time, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis and Elvis was deeply saddened by that. Of course, he's he is a Memphis boy himself and he just thought that this confirmed everyone's worst feelings about the South. <laughs> so Goldenberg and Earl, mostly Walter Earl Brown, wrote this song called If I Can Dream. He sent it to Parker, which is Elvis' manager, and Parker was like, I still thought that the show would be closed with I'll Be Home for Christmas. And so he had kind of a negative response to this song, but Binder, again, the show's producer, went around him and was like, hey, Elvis, check out this song. And Elvis listened to it three times and was like, I have to record this. And so he was so moved by it. And of course, he did close with that song. Uh, I just want to add that. For that closing song, he wore a white three-piece suit, and on the back it said Elvis in red letters. And uh, at the end of the show, he was like, thank you, good night. <laughs> and anyways, the show was a success, and it actually displaced laughing, which was huge at the time, and 42% of the total television audience watched it from the you know, those Nielsen reviews, which I've wondered, do they, are those still around? It's a great question. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that the other day, actually. <laughs> Does that still exist? Um, but the show's soundtrack actually charted. And because of the popularity of this show, everyone knows it now as the comeback special, not the Christmas special. But after that, Elvis said, I'll never sing another song that I don't believe in. I'm never going to make another movie that I don't believe in. I mean, I don't know if he stuck by his words because we all know his ending, his demise was not so great. Not a good look. Yeah. But but he was also inspired to do more songs. So uh, after that, he recorded a new al album. And that is from Elvis in Memphis, 1969. And this one included the single In the Ghetto. On a cold and gray Chicago morning, a poor little baby child is born in the ghetto. It reached number 13 on the Billboard charts. This, the single reached number three and was certified gold by the Recording uh, Industry Association of America. And it just kept growing in legacy and Rolling Stone included it on the list of top five greatest albums of all time. Nice. Of all time. Of all wow. time, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I love that story. You can go watch the Boz Lerman Elvis movie. It's not too bad. And I think sticks pretty true to that part of his story, which is that comeback special. Yeah, I just love it. He was like, no, I'm not going to do some silly Christmas thing. I need to do this. This speaks to me. This speaks to my community and who I am. And he and he played that song and he crushed it. And man, I just thought that was a good, I love that story. Yeah. I have chills just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. 
I've never yeah. really been like a huge Elvis aficionado, but every time I feel like I, I learn, I hear an interesting story about something he did. So just adding that to the list of respectful yeah. things. The only thing that I, I know about him, uh, other well, one of the key things I know about him, didn't he try to get like the Beatles arrested or something? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that story, but <laughs> I should look that up. I don't know. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I misheard, but I thought I heard something about <laughs> It's nice I'm to hear curious. a positive story about it. There's a lot of positive stories about Elvis, I will say. A lot of Elvis's black backup band mates and singers were paid a lot more touring with Elvis than they would have at the time, like on the Chitlin Circuit, which is sad, but I'm glad that he took care of them. And, you know, and you can hear um, Little Richard say this too, that yes, Elvis has covered some of his songs, but because he was a white man, he opened doors for Little Richard to do what he loved to do, and and again, it's like it's unfortunate that that's how it played out. But yeah. I I think he really appreciated those people and their their music, and I just I think there's more to Elvis than a lot of us really know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, totally fair. But yeah, cool comeback story. <laughs> All right, this one is way more modern. Number three is My Bloody Valentine with MBV, released in 2013. MBV is the third studio album by My Bloody Valentine, released again February 2013. And it was produced by Kevin Shields, who's the band's singer and guitarist, and is the first full-length release of original material since Loveless, their second studio album, in 1991. So, like, two decades prior. So this is a major comeback. Yeah. But following their departure from Creation Records, they released their second studio album, Loveless. Uh, My Bloody Valentine was then signed with Island Records in October 1992 for a reported 250,000 pounds. The band's advance from that signing went towards construction of a home studio in South London, which was completed in April 1993. But some technical problems they had with the studio sent them all into this, like, meltdown, (laughs) which led to their demise. The band did end up breaking up in 1997, but luckily they did record some songs for MBV in 1996. Fast forward to 2006, Kevin Shields resumes recording after a time when the band had reunited, and he combined the recordings from 1996 sessions to these new sessions, and then added some more vocals, bass, and drum tracks in around 2011-2012. The song She Found Now was the only song recorded completely from scratch in 2012. And then the album was recorded and mixed and then released February 2013. When they released it, the website crashed within minutes. <laughs> I think I was like one of the lucky ones that got through because I definitely bought that record as soon as it came out. It received critical acclaim and Someone, one of the guys from LA Times wrote that the album's opening was a syrupy, drunken vessel of deep tremolo guitar and ending on a whirlwind of rhythm, adding the record blossoms 20 minutes in and over its length presents the sound of a group living in the here and now, rhythms of the moment and staticky love anthems like If I Am, as beautiful as anything the band has ever done. Mm. The end. Wow. So good. Such a good record. Nice to see a positive review of a shoegaze album from a a critic. (laughs) 
Which I guess we're not in the 90s anymore, but, you know, it's still That's nice. That's true. Okay. <laughs> I definitely hand-selected that one. There were some who were like, ah, two stars out of four. I'm like, no, you are not welcome here. I, I have a very embarrassing <laughs> confession to make about this record. Um, cool. So I, I, I heard about it coming out. And I was like, you know, like, it's my bloody Valentine. I need to hear this on vinyl. And I was going to wait to listen to the record until I bought the vinyl record. And I never bought the record, so I've never heard the album. And what? I've heard, like, maybe one song from it, I think. Just, like, Spotify, like, threw it in my playlist one day. And I was like, wait, I haven't heard the, the album on vinyl yet. So I'm what? I'm super embarrassed to say I haven't heard the album, the, the latest album, uh, all the way through. Well, yeah. one, I admire your determination to not listen to it until you have a physical <laughs> copy in hand, because uh, I couldn't do that. But to add that thing to your I Christmas know. list, I, I need. I, I don't. I don't know why I don't have it yet. I, I've bought so many other albums, you know, on vinyl uh, since that particular one's come out. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I just forgot. Like, I need to put that back on my to-do list for sure, though. It's good. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, Natalie, have you heard it yet? I have not. I think. Um, what is it? The, the really popular one, Loveless, Loveless was yeah. the only yeah. My Bloody Valentine record I'm somewhat familiar with. That's completely missed this one. So don't feel embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with well, you. Yeah, I mean, Loveless is a classic. So yeah. at, at least you've heard that one. That's the one you should hear. I, I feel yeah. like the song that I did hear from that from their last record was, uh, well, I step back like, Oh, my friends were kind of telling me about it because uh, they obviously listened to it. And I think their reaction was like, it sounds more like just like another My Bloody Valentine record. It didn't seem like there was anything like crazy different in terms of like what they've put out before or yeah. you know, right after Loveless. But and so like I kind of with the one song that I did hear, I kind of got that vibe a little bit. I was like, OK, this is definitely My Bloody Valentine. Nothing crazy new, but. I'm curious if you had that same reaction too, or or if it was like this is groundbreaking, or it's like oh this is super like super new, or like yeah. I mean, I okay. So there is actual quote from Kevin Shields who says that the album is different from Loveless in so many ways, but we all know he made these guitar sounds, so like you yeah. know those sounds as being Kevin Shields. It's gonna sound like yeah. my bloody Valentine, That's no true. matter what. Plus, they did treat the mastering and recording just like they did Loveless. Yeah. So at least in terms of um, quality of sound and like how it sounds as a as it was as it was produced, not like the actual right. like notes and stuff may yeah. have a similar sound as well. But he said he was trying to be more impressionistic, uh, oh. not trying to think of songs of as having beginnings, middles, or ends. Interesting. Yeah. But I haven't ever really listened to them back to back, so mm. I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't say yeah. I don't well, think it's like way different. Yeah. But, and of course, he would say that, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine so. So I have a couple of questions for you, Tara. Then, yeah. Seeing as you were so excited that you you slid in before the whole website crashed, <laughs> was the album everything you wanted it to be oh, when yeah. you first heard it? Oh yeah. And then also, what's your favorite track? I don't. I don't have a favorite track from that album. But when it first came out, I was definitely like, oh, this is so great, so good. And I thought it was definitely worth worth it. The hype was true, mm. you know, for me. I thought, okay, it sounds like My Bloody Valentine. And th for that, I'm glad. Because what if it didn't? It would not be a fun time. Everyone wants. Right, what if they tried to be all modern and do like, you know, trap? <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is trash. Well, I mean, because like, <laughs> that's why I asked about like the 
you know, it sounds like, does it sound like a My Bloody Valentine or is there something different element to it? Because, like, mm-hmm. I feel like when Lo- with Loveless, especially if you listen to, like, the other stuff that they've put out is, was more like, I guess raw maybe is a good word for it. Like yeah. there's more like rock forward. Whereas Loveless was, I felt like experimenting with a lot of like samplers and like drum machines yes. and loops and like a little more maybe conceptual. So I was, I wasn't sure if like they were trying something, you know, conceptual again with this new album or if it was just more like, ah, let's just get back to the kind of raw roots of my bloody Valentine, which is just like loud. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely not conceptual in that sense, but that's a good point that you bring up the like samples and the looping and whatnot, because Kevin Shields did talk about how he was influenced by some jungle music and there is like definitely some drum and bass influence there. So if you haven't heard it yet and you're into those things, go and check it out and see what you think, because I don't think it is very dramatically different, Mm. especially like you said, from maybe the older stuff prior to Loveless. Mm -hmm. And Loveless was kind of way more groundbreaking in that sense, but it's still so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's still so good. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that's good to hear. Like, it sounds like they, they stuck to, like, the core of what makes them My Bloody Valentine, which that's that's something hard to do, especially, like, comeback albums, I feel like. I don't know. I feel like there's this fear of, like, not having that sense of identity in the band that, or that you know about the band, like, with their new album you know like it's always sort of like oh man I hope this is good I think you even said that earlier like like I hope this is yeah. gonna be good yeah so that's that's cool that uh I feel like it's few bands are able to kind of pull that off stay true yeah. to who they are but then like still kind of like put out good music and and kind of keep moving forward yeah for sure I mean I think it seems like history has shown that usually it's the sophomore slump that's the hardest right and that for them was the the best. Yeah. So after that, you're like, I don't care. I'm doing what I want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe. That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Ask Roy Orbison. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, speaking of someone who had a crazy comeback moment, uh, this guy, number two, and it happened to be his 67th studio album. A comeback on the 67th studio album. Can you imagine the output? <sighs> yeah. Any guesses? Mm. Uh. Yes. <laughs> oh, is it because we have overlap? Do we have overlap? What's that? Is it because you know who it is? And I think I know who it is. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna wait. No, no. Guess. I, I want to see. I'm sure you know who it is. Willie Nelson. No, it's not Willie. But close. No. Actually, very close. Okay. This man has worked with Willie, and I'm not talking about. So Willie is our redheaded stranger. I'm talking about the Man in Black. Ah, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. You're on. Personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers. Hey, yeah, 67th. I didn't realize he was so prolific. Oh man, well, he had all those gospel records, he had rock, he had the live albums in the jail, he had so many things. But this was from that collection, the American Collections. This is American for The Man Comes Around. It was released in November 5th, 2002, and it was also, sadly, his final studio album. A little history before we get into that album, though, is in 1997, during a trip to New York, Johnny Cash was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease, Shy Drager syndrome, which I've never heard of. It's a form of multiple system atrophy. But then the diagnosis was changed to autonomic neuropathy and associated with diagnosis diabetes and it forced him to not really tour as much or anymore 
Then he was hospitalized in 1998 with pneumonia, which caused some damage to his lungs. So this was like fully already like during the last stage of his career. And he released uh, the album American 3 in 2007 and then started working with Rick Rubin. So this album, American 4, is mostly covers of mm. songs, but in his own sparse, dark style. Yeah. That That's the album with Hurt, right? The Hurt yes. cover, the famous one, yeah. Yeah, he covers Personal Jesus by Depeche oh, Mode, yeah. Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, yeah. The video for Hurt is so beautiful and so, it, it just paired so well with the song. It was like, I remember distinctly watching it and, and he, he realizes like he's close to the end and like yeah. highlight reel of his life is like, just paired so well with the with the with the music. Oh gosh, I have chills already thinking about <laughs> it. But yeah, I will say also I just want to add this part that for the song "Personal Jesus," Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist John Frusciante reworked the guitar part um, into an acoustic version, and he also got some backing vocal assistance from Fiona Apple, Nick Cave, Don Henley on this album, which is you know all star cast. I know Don Henley, and <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this so after this record is released, it was the first non-compilation album to go gold in 30 years for Johnny Cash, and it won Album of the Year at the 2003 CMA Awards. It was certified gold by 2003, March 24, 2003, and platinum by November 2003. I hurt myself today. To see if I still feel. Yes, the video for Hurt, which was originally written by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails um, and originally released in 1994, was nominated for seven categories at the MTV Music Video Awards and won an award for Best Cinematography. Trent Reznor said that he was flattered but worried about the idea of Johnny Cash covering his song. He thought maybe it might be gimmicky, but when he heard the song and saw the video for the first time, he said he was deeply moved and found Johnny Cash's cover more beautiful and meaningful and even went as far as to say, that song is not mine anymore. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Then I will say too that so Johnny Cash, of course, having a lot of health issues at the time and had lost most of his vision, kept interrupting the recording sessions, but he was hospitalized and later died of complications of diabetes on September 12th of 2003. He was only 71. And like I said, that record came out in November of 2002. So very shortly after, and also only four months after June died. That's so oh, sad. That is sad. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I promise the next story is really positive. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, like, I gotta go watch that video again, and I don't know, that's gonna put me in a mood, but it's worth it. It's such a great song. Yeah. So I'm looking at this uh, track list for this Johnny Cash album because oh, yeah. I've I've heard, you know, Personal Jesus, I've heard as well, but I didn't realize that he covered "First Time Ever I Saw Your Face," which is like my favorite yeah. love song oh, of all yeah. time. So immediately, I'm gonna have to listen to this. When I get home. Oh, and I forgot he also did uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. That was the one he did with mm-hmm. Fiona Apple. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, we'll meet again. Yeah, that was that the last song on the album? Oh, man, that's that's too sad. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, snap. That's, that's sad. Yeah. yeah, last song. Wow. 
Ugh. Best last, save that one for a best last yeah, track yeah. list. Ooh. Hi-fi game. All right, we've reached the end. This one is a celebratory story. Also an album released in the 80s, Tina Turner. Private dancer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. So we all know for many, many years she was fronting a band with Ike and they were very successful. They had a lot of hits like Proud Mary. Just one example. We know River Deep Mountain High. In 1976, she left Ike. She was 36 at this point. She left Ike, found herself raising four kids and drowning in debt. She took on just about any gig she could get, cheesy TV variety shows, performing in hotels, Vegas dinner shows. And then luckily, someone agreed to partner with her on this remake of Bala Confusion, which is a Temptations song. Well, someone who was going to remake Ball of Confusion had the person they were going to work with bailed on them. So Tina was able to join in. That was a lucky opportunity for her because the Temptations remake was only released in the UK, but it saw some success, which allowed Tina or helped her to get signed with Capitol Records. But then some boring old asshole <laughs> said they were going to drop her. However, A&R superhero guy, John Carter, got on his knees and begged this old boring executive to reverse his decision. You better change your mind because you're going to regret it if, if you don't. He begged. He begged and pleaded. He actually got on his knees. Luckily, the executive begrudgingly agreed to reverse his decision not to not drop Tina Turner from Capitol Records, but he did say they're barely going to lift a finger to promote her album, and maybe her new music might be dead on arrival. Ugh. Recording sessions for the album took place uh, at several studios in England, and then, of course, we all know one of the songs, What's Love Got to Do With It, was rejected by a bunch of other artists. Tina herself nearly passed on it. She said, I didn't like it. I didn't think it was my style. I thought it was wimpy, but persevered. And luckily, she did do it because it brought out this like tenderness in a, in a different way from Tina Turner. And one of the big hits that kind of launched her rebirth. But this record was probably one of the greatest comebacks in music history. It went multi-platinum. Uh, it had the singles, What's Love Got to Do With It, which won a Grammy, Private Dancer won Record of the Year. And it was her first and only number one song on the Billboard 100. So at age 44 at this point, she was the oldest female solo artist to have a hit in the top 100. And then her chart success continued with Better Be Good to Me, Private Dancer, We Don't Need Another Hero, oh. Typical Male, The Best, Golden Eye. But she also uh, embarked on a tour and became the top grossing female on tour in the 80s and set a Guinness World Record for the then largest paying audience in a concert at 180K. And so, yeah, this man, she just it, she just hit a hot streak and had one of the best comebacks ever. Tina Turner. Amazing. And she's got to be like the biggest crossover artist, too, of right, all time. Yeah. She didn't want to do R&B anymore. She didn't want to be pinned into some genre. She wanted to rock. She wanted to rock. Yeah. Rest in peace. And that she and did. And that she did. But yeah. This, I mean, this really is the, the quintessential 
comeback story, redemption story. Yeah. She was up against a lot. Like, just True. let's just disregarding, you know, Ike, you know, lurking and actively threatening her throughout this yes. time um, and all of her other troubles. The, the industry was not very welcoming either. No. Like she was having to overcome the ageism, the racism, the misogyny yeah. to make this happen. I mean, it really is just spectacular how it how this worked out for her. Yeah. There were some really fun moments though for her that I read about how uh, I think on some television interview, someone asked David Bowie what he was going to do after the show or something. And he was like, I'm going to go watch my favorite artist, Tina Turner. And <laughs> that was before... Private Answer was out. So, oh, wow. and I think also uh, Mick Jagger had said something along those lines of Tina Turner. So it's really cool to have those two legends like on your side. I mean, she was already a legend too in her own right, but yeah, I don't know. I just thought those were, yeah. those were mean, nice highlights. That's part of the reason why Capital got all hot on her again, because she had some, she had some good career boosts in there. Like yeah. she went on tour with um, Rod Stewart. She opened for the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Um, she did another uh, cover, an Al, Al Green, Green cover. Right. That was, I think, big in the UK. So, yeah, it's good to have friends in high places (laughs) like that. (laughs) I feel like uh, she's um, she'll probably be a good candidate for like another biopic movie. Uh, Like they just did one for uh, Whitney Houston. I feel like Tina Turner. You're late. I'm I'm what? You're late. You're late. I'm late. Uh Oh, Oh, yeah. Wait, did they already have one? Broadway show. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. I'm late. It was it was epic too. You should check it out. She has yeah, she has a great biopic film. Yeah, and now a Broadway show oh, wow. about her life. What's it called? What's the the film called? Tina. Oh, it's just Tina. Tina. Oh well, the show. Yeah. Was it a Tina. recent? Did it come out recently or like? <laughs> yeah, semi recent. Um, I forget. I know, like Selena had one. Whitney had one. Twenty twenty one. Wow. Yeah. Just not promoted. I, man, I oh no, it was huge. Wow. Must, I don't even watch TV wow. I, or okay. movies, and I watched it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's on HBO Max. Actually, wow, that's yeah. crazy. Okay. Oh yeah, HBO. I think you're right. Man, okay, I'll definitely check it out then. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> but that's my list. Man, a lot of lot of heavy hitters on your list. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty solid. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Well, I'm excited to hear what you guys have. Kick it off, Carlos. Well, all right, cool. Well. So my list is not as impressive as yours, Tara. Uh, oh, you, you had a lot of cool history and context behind uh, your albums. The ones that I thought of were more based on, you know, bands that I think kind of went away for a little bit and just kind of didn't do anything for a while um, and then came back with an album with varying degrees of success. So I think one band that comes to mind, and I'll start at like top, or top five, I guess, right? That we're doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like number five, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to, because I just want to talk about it. I'm curious what you guys think about it. But I chose an album that was a comeback album that I didn't like. I'm going to, I'm going to cheat a little bit. And so for that spot, I chose Weezer's Green Album. Which is the album right (laughs) after Pinkerton. Um, You know, like, you guys know that's the album that didn't have Matt Sharp. I wonder if that has a lot to do with why it was not as good and why it sounded totally different than their previous records. I just felt like it didn't didn't have the same essence of Weezer. You know, we were talking about that with, like, My Bloody Valentine. Like, I also didn't realize that, you know, as I was looking at who produced that album, it's crazy to know that, like, 
Rick Ocasek from the Cars produced that record. So maybe that's a big reason why it sounds the way it does. I don't know, because the Blue Album was also produced by Rick Ocasek. I didn't know that. Really? But it had yeah. such a, it had, so the Blue Album had such a more raw sound, I feel like. You know? It, yeah, and definitely. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know why. But for me, it just didn't hit. Like, it was one of those weird things where it's like, I almost tried to force myself to like it because it was Weezer. You know, at the <laughs> yeah. time, I was like, this yeah. is Weezer. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, this is, there's got to be something in here that I really like. I, there's a couple of songs on the Green Album that I thought were okay for a while, like Island in the Sun, um, Hashpipe. You know, like, there were certain catchy elements of those songs, but then I feel like it just kind of came to terms and it was just like, oh, this is actually just not good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a you hot know, take. Right. Here's my take on the Green Album, because I love the Blue Album and I love Pinkerton, and they're both totally different from each other. The Blue Album has those, like, classic rock moments that mm. that's what Rivers Cuomo was so into when he was younger. He was into classic rock, and he just got kind of sucked in by the whole grunge and alternative movement Mm. in music. And then Pinkerton was like influenced from a rock opera or was kind of like a rock opera in itself rather. Um, Makes sense. But influenced by Madame Butterfly. And I think it was like maybe a more mature, his more mature thing. But for Green album, it seemed like he was trying to go simple again. But maybe we were the ones that changed because we were older. Uh Yeah. Maybe. So like, so first, let's see, the Blue Album came out, I think, in uh, 95, yeah. And then Green Album was 2001. Yeah. For me, I was, I was a junior in high school. Um, Wait, in which, for blue or green? For green. That's maybe dating me a little bit. (laughs) Well, no. I was going to say, I was 15 when the Blue Album came out, but I was 21 when Green Album came out. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. So for me, I was like, I'm not really into it, but by then I was already into, like, peaches and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, was— you had, You'd moved away. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I just was going to say, I agree with your point, Tara. A lot of the times we have these expectations or we have, like, these memories, and then we don't take into account how we've matured and how our tastes have changed. Yeah. Also, at the same time, I think it was just kind of stale. Like, I'm sitting here trying to think about it. Like, either I bailed halfway through listening to it or the latter half was just completely forgettable to me because I have no recollection of of those songs (laughs) in the latter half of it. It just made so little impact that I... I'm a little too apathetic to form an opinion on it, really. I mean, I just... You know, I don't dislike, I don't like. I'm just kind of, eh, I think that's totally, I mean, for me, because I think it was still, because when you look at the rest of other albums that came out in 2001, which I just had to cheat and pull up, Discovery by Daft Punk, Mm. Amnesiac, Radiohead, is the, if if you want to relate it to a a rock record, is this it by The Strokes? Mm Mm-hmm. Which was more classic rock in a sense, like took so many influences from like Blondie and stuff like that. Vespertine by Bjork. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just on another level by then. Well, I feel like we were pretty spoiled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a I, I, that's the good. It's a good point. Like, I guess in comparison to what was coming out, it's like the quality of, of like those ended up becoming classic records. You know, Vespertine yeah. and then like that's the Strokes album. Um, the Shinzo inverted world. So there's a lot going on, right? Musically. Yeah. And then, so. But Green Album felt like Hash, like hash Pipe, Blink 182, like yeah. Crotch Rock. Or <laughs> I don't <laughs> you know. know. That's what it felt like. Yeah, I don't know what it was. It 
and for me, it almost just felt like, uh, hey, I guess we're due an album. Let's put something out, um, which maybe that's yeah. harsh, but it just uh, it's kind of how, how it impacted me. And it was so disappointing. Like, that's where I'm starting. <laughs> I respect this choice to bring this up. It's a good combo. I, yeah, because I loved Weezer and I still right. love them, but I don't listen to anything new by them. I, and, yeah, exactly. And that's like that for me was sort of like the beginning of their musical decline in my opinion um you know people love them still today yeah although i will say that album that they put out recently of like 80s cover songs since we're talking about the 80s right oh was actually pretty good the the toto cover (laughs) was actually pretty good there's a new oh yeah i like that cover honestly it's cheesy but i like and enjoy a cheesy moment but there's a even newer one of not covers of original stuff that i think i've I think I like it, kind of. <laughs> it's uh, I think that one is called Seasons or S-Z-N-Z. I'll, I'll have to check that out then. Wait, he they have like a season. They have a spring. They have a winter. Oh, they have yeah. All those seasons. That sounds familiar. Okay. One of them I really liked. Yeah. I can't remember which one. Anyways. Yeah, so that was disappointing. It's all uphill from here, though, for my list. <laughs> Woo! I think anyways. Uh, yeah, this is such a hard topic and, you know, like struggling to kind of think of some impactful ones. And again, like my choices came mainly just from like time based, like kind of went away for a while and then they came back. So this next one kind of going, sticking with the shoegaze theme a little bit. And I have a little bit of a bias for why I chose this album. But the album is uh, Molten Young Lovers by a band called Ariel. They're from Chicago. They're a shoegaze band. They've been around for a long, long time. Um, they were one of the first like other shoegaze bands that I heard outside of Slow Dive and like My Bloody Valentine. They were one of the first bands that like you know I heard and 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 sort of discovered that there was like a cool scene of like underground like shoegaze bands that exist. This was like late '90s, early 2000s, I think. So they have this box set of they were released as EPs called uh, Winks and Kisses. They recently reissued it. The bias part comes in because they actually asked me to remix one of their songs wow. for the reissue. And so that's, uh, you know, kind of why I chose this. Because, like, again, they were they became one of my favorite, like, shoegaze uh, bands. And so, like, you know, I, I loved their earlier work and I was wished it would come out with something new. And they, they finally did. They came out with this really great record, um, Molten Young Lovers. Yeah, I think it's a good comeback album because it feels... They still kept the essence of Ariel, like the, the production value still feels the same. Like the songs are still like it feels like an Ariel record. Like we were talking about that with My Bloody Valentine. Um, but, you know, you can tell like they're, they're still pushing it a little bit forward. Like the songwriting is is um, uh, really great, really great lyrics. So I, I don't know. I just love the album and I love that it kind of like kept that identity carried through. I'm putting that one at number four on my list. I've never heard of this band. I don't think I've heard of this band, but sometimes I'll like listen to something one time and then forget about it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I've heard of this band. Yeah. Um, and the reason I even got in touch with them is because a buddy of mine that I used to work with uh, was friends with um, this girl that sang on one of their like, you know, more recognizable singles, uh, which is called Firefly. Um, her name is Stella Tran. Um, and 
she she does the vocals on that song. Again, it's, I think it's called Firefly. And I actually got to remix that song, which was amazing um, for the record. Uh, that's the one they asked me to remix. Um, and so anyways, like my buddy put me in touch with her because he told her I was a big fan of Ariel. And then he, she put me in touch with Jeremy, who's the uh, frontman of the band. And we just kind of like talked online for a bit and got to know each other. And, you know, it's just this sort of like really cool moment to like meet and like talk to like this iconic figure, you know, like in my musical sort of like library. I don't know. It was a weird sensation, cool. weird feel. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this one is pretty like top of mind for me because it's, I love the band and I love the record. That's cool. And how long of a, a time break was there between? Yeah. So albums? I think this one actually also might be cheating a little bit because it's a little bit less than 10 years, I think. But I want to say the last thing they did was um, in 2007 maybe and then Molten Young Lovers 2017 oh so I guess maybe oh, that's yeah. that's about 10 years ish that's 10 years yeah. yeah the Battle of Sealand that was the last thing that they did that's kind of an interesting story behind that recorded on this little it's literally a country called Sealand it's like an independent country but it's like a super small like I don't know. Oh, I don't even know how. Micro, to, yeah. Micronation. Micronation. There you go. <laughs> it's crazy. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, it's an interesting story of how they, they, they played a show there, I think, or they did something about, they have some association with Sealand outside of just naming their album after it. They're, they were named official lords of Sealand. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool, though. Like, I, I want to be like a lord of, an, of a country. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, Maybe if you could go there yeah. and also name something on your new album you related go. to them, and you could get even more success than them, maybe you oh, can, yeah. can become a lord also. Well, I got a lot of work to do. That's <laughs> I got a big, big road ahead of me there. Better start now. I'm, well, I've been <laughs> at this for years now with Navigator, but we'll see. Maybe something will happen. The, the Roy Orbison story yeah. was was a good, uh, yeah, good inspiration for that. Lord Navigator sounds pretty go. cool, though. I think you should just, just rebrand it. Yeah, just take I it. I like that actually. Do that. That is Lord Navigator. <laughs> That's great, actually. Isn't that badass? I love that. Um, I have never heard of this band before, but I have to say, I love the title "Multi yeah. Young Lovers." Like that's intriguing yeah. enough for me to want to oh, check yeah, it out. De yeah, definitely check it out. They've also worked uh, really closely with Ulrich Schnauss. If you're familiar with him, he's like a great electronic producer. Has been around for. A long time. Um, check out uh, Sugar Crystals. That's a track that he produced, and it's a beautiful track. So that was my number four, and I guess I'll go on to number three. Uh, so this next album is another, like, pretty... This band had a pretty influential record for me musically, um, which is also a little bit of why I chose it. Um, and then they went away for a while and came back and put out a really amazing album. Uh, so for number three, this is... Inlet by this band called Hum, which I'm sure you know of, Tara. You, you've got to know who oh. Hum is. Yeah, so the last album that they did before this one, I think was, I think it was like, it was 90-something. Inlet was re released uh, 2020, um, and... Again, one of those albums that like production uh, value, like sound wise, just everything just like felt like a continuation of Hum, but like even better, 
Like I got to see them live and perform their songs here in Atlanta. It was so cool. Like when they were doing me this. Me too. You did? Breaking Ball? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> so great, right? Um, I was yelling at some guy who's going, you suck. What? I was like, why are you, why are you here? here? <laughs> I don't and understand he, that. I was like, shut up. Of course, me, yeah. skinny little girl in the middle of the crowd. And he's like, bye, Felicia. I'm like, God, you're oh, dumb. Oh, no. You're actually just a dumb dumb. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, like, I'm going to spend, it wasn't a cheap show necessarily, right? Like, it's so, like, I'm going to spend a lot of money and go. It was a festival, right? Y- yeah. I think the night I went to see them, I think there was like one was night where it was just, ball? yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think there was one night where it was. Pre-party, maybe. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, because I think it was just them. Uh, when I, At least when I. No, I think you're right. I think that was like a special one-off. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so like they played a lot from this album uh, from what I remember. And yeah, it was so good. And their first, their, their previous two albums. I, you prefer an astronaut, and then like downward is heavenward. I think is the mm-hmm. the other one. I mean, those are two like pretty iconic albums. I think um, yes. from like the nineties, you know. And I feel like this one kind of. I think it could sit up there with those with those uh, with those two albums. I mean, they they had the songwriting still there. Again, like they still have that huge wall of sound, and like there are certain songs on this album that I listen to on repeat, and to me, that's a mark of like a classic album, you know. Um, yeah. And there's multiple tracks like that that just like sound so good, and I, I have to listen to them. I thought this was so worth this mentioning. Was, yeah, yeah. So this was like what, like almost 20 years went by. Yeah, this was a big time in my mind comeback album. Like they just totally disappeared. Uh, I don't think any of the members did anything related or, or so. in other bands or anything like that. They just kind of like disappeared in a plume of dust, and then just like <laughs> surprise, they're back. So yeah. I put this one on, oh, on number three. Yeah, it does seem like they did have, some of the members had side projects, but they, of course, well, we didn't know who they were. You know what I mean? Like, they were small. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, that's so why I'm, like, not really doing anything that would know about uh, on yeah. the same level as Hum. So uh, definitely a good album to listen to if you're into, like, heavy, yeah. s- like, wall of sound type production. I love those quiet moments then just explode into loud Right, which fuzzy guitars. That was like a big theme. I feel like in the nineties, yeah. grunge era was like the quiet, loud, quiet, loud dynamic. Yeah, uh, but they did it really well. That's number three. So number two is also a shoegaze record. It's a big shoegaze theme. Um, so my number two pick is the self-titled album from Slow Dive. Um, and oh, yes. yes, so again, like this band was like put through the ringer, like, you know, back when they were putting out Suvlaki and Pygmalion, like they were sort of panned across the board. Like they weren't really paid attention to that, that much. You know, they were famously part of the, you know, shoegaze like movement. And they were called sort of like the scene that celebrates itself, you know, the part of that whole <laughs> movement. But now like. Uh, they've come out with this beautiful new album. They've had this resurgence, this new like uh, tour. I actually got to see them twice. I saw them play in Chicago at Pitchfork Festival. Me uh, too. I was there. Well, what's up, Tara? What? Let's go to some shows. <laughs> we were in Chicago at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Well, wasn't it beautiful when they played uh, the last song? I think it was Let, and I'm, I'm spacing on the name, Let Down Your Golden Hair, I think. 
What's the name of it? The sun was like behind yes. them. Uh, wasn't yes. Wasn't like that was just like so beautiful. So anyways, I digress. But uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I felt like the that album. So this is a good example of an album that still feels like Slow Dive, but they're actually trying a few new things here. Like they're the the drumming is a little bit simpler. The production is a little bit more stripped down, but they still feel it feels like a shoegaze like slow dive album to me. Like, you know, Rachel and Neil still have that perfect like combination of vocals that like you can maybe understand their vocals a little bit more in this production mm-hmm. of this record versus the earlier stuff. But like I feel like this is a great example of like a comeback record where they're trying new stuff, yeah. you know, but just kind of like still feels core to who they are um you know there's layered synths now they're doing a lot more with like different samples and stuff like that um a lot of that is also because like their drummer ian i think he's been doing a lot of like film production like uh sound design kind of work since slow dive so i'm curious if maybe some of that kind of came or crept into like some of the new material but yeah i I loved the record i thought i thought it was like just really beautiful and again this was, I think, Pygmalion. I'm trying to remember when that came out. That was the last one they did, if I'm... 95? Yeah. 95? Yeah. So, I mean, and then... Um, yeah, exactly. And then the self-titled was uh, 2017. Um, so, beautiful record. I don't know. You've heard it, right? What? Yes. Okay. Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. I, love, I love Slow Dive. But also, how fun. It's like you get dropped by Creation Records, yeah. which they were kind of going through some stuff, too. Yeah. But... Then you're immediately picked up by 4AD. Like, of all the right. labels that you want to be on, it's 4AD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where all the cred is. Yeah. That's where all the good uh, Cocteau Twins. Oh, yeah. Man, all of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I love Slow. This is a great one. This is a great example. And the- Plus, what, how many years? That was almost 20 years for them, too. Yeah, it was. Yeah, was it? Oh, man. 95 to 2017? Yeah. I can't do math. Someone do the math for me. And, of course, they did Mojave 3. Neil and Rachel did uh, that project, but, you know, totally different than than Slow Dive. So it was interesting to, like, hear them come back to that, like, sort of shoegaze rock setting because, like, Mojave 3 and Neil's solo stuff was was very country folk-inspired. And so just, like, I don't know, having them come back to the loud stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, Good one. Yeah. Natalie, do you like Slow Dive? You know, I've listened to a bit of Slow Dive, but honestly, I'm not a big shoegaze <laughs> kind of person. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to let you aficionados take the reins. No, no, yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like, shoegaze has been bleeding into a lot of other genres of music. Like, I just saw Death Heaven uh, in Asheville not too long ago, and they're often described as, like, shoegaze black metal. Like, yeah. the weirdest combination, but it makes sense if you kind of think about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh. I mean, is that not drone in a sense? Yes. Just like bang on your guitar as loud as you can and just let it ring out. Uh, and sludgy eh. and loud. Yes. I mean, you know, they, they did the tremolo thing in their sh- <laughs> at their show every now yeah. and then. So maybe that's the shoegaze part of it. But <laughs> Thank you, Kevin Shields. Thank you, Kevin Shields. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to see like the influence that shoegaze has brought into mainstream culture um, yeah. as well. Like, Definitely. I can hear it in so many like contemporary modern acts too so mm-hmm, um, for sure anyways cool well that was your number two that was my number two Ooh, okay number one number one roll. yeah so and again these were really hard to pick and there are probably much better albums that I'm blanking on but some of these are recent like this number one pick is super recent because I just saw them live too actually so my number one pick is LP2 by American Football never change 
baby, that's okay. <laughs> so this is uh, one of those bands that, okay, if you if you know who the Kinsellas are, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Like super yeah. influential uh, Midwest indie punk emo scene. Some people say that they invented or per- maybe perpetuated the emo kind of sound. There are bands out there that sound identical to bands that members of American football have been in. Super influential. Like I was obsessed with them for the longest time. Uh, I think I first heard them 2002 or three, um, which was, they had been broken up by then, I think, because I think their first and only album was 99. Maybe, yeah, 99, I think, is when they put out uh, mm-hmm. their self-titled LP. And then they just- They're all named, they're all self-titled. I, th- they? I, I think the the most- Oh, they just call them LP1, LP2. Well, LP I think LP3. the most recent release, which I think is an EP- might have a name, but otherwise, yes. <laughs> They're just the first one is LP one, and it's got this very iconic picture of the, this house, which the house. is yeah, it's been carried through and a few other things. But um, yeah, so you know, nineteen ninety nine to let's see, twenty sixteen is when I think they put out the LP two, and again, like when a perfect example of just like a band that carried through, like they actually got better, I think. Uh, with this follow-up album. Yeah, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, the, the original lineup, um, all three original members, and then they added a couple of people to play live shows. Uh, I recently saw them in Asheville. That was a bit busy weekend, by the way. I saw American Football, and then I saw Deaf Heaven the next night. So, uh, interesting, nice weekend of live music. But um, They played here, too, yeah. the same night as King Cruel, but I went to King Cruel. And- oh, yeah, they, they played with Dinosaur Jr., right? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't feel so bad about missing that one because I'd seen Dinosaur Jr. already. Great live band. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I didn't feel as bad missing out on the Atlanta show. But again, just like perfect example of like great instrumentation. Uh, they And they bring that to the live show as well. You know, they added a few different people to like play instruments like uh, vibraphones. They have other drummers just like does this cool thing where he's like playing trumpet solo. You feel like you're in a jazz club somewhere uh, in the live show. Um, so yeah, just really expand on like their instrumentation. It sort of feels like it's almost like the uh, this is the album that they wanted to make, but they couldn't because it was just the three of them, two guys and a mm-hmm. guitar and a drummer. But now they have like cult following going for them. And it's, uh, yeah, they've just been getting better and better. So this is where I ended up with my number one. I think I think it's a great album and uh, a good comeback album. And that's LP three. I think it's LP two. Yeah, LP two. Oh, 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 gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I yeah, thought yeah, you. Were, yeah. It was a later one that you're referring to. Okay, LP two. LP yes. two. Yep, yep. And I don't remember if I've listened to that one, but I loved the first one definitely, mm-hmm. and also yes, heard it back when I was in college, and I also really enjoyed Captain Jazz. Of course. Too, so. Which yeah, which if if. Those listening, if you don't know, it's Mike Kinsella is the brother of Tim Kinsella. They were both brothers in Captain Jazz, who spawned a myriad of other bands. There's actually a cool graph um, that exists somewhere online of like the family tree. Someone actually took the time to diagram like, okay, the, these two people went in this band and they split it. This band. It's kind of yeah. interesting to track the lineage of all those bands. Yeah. Cool. That's it. That's all I got. Very cool. I always like a list where I have lots of new stuff to listen to. So thank you for that. Awesome. I've got a little homework. I also do like how your list was more like rock and indie. And so Mm. I'm, and now I'm, because mine had a lot of 
not country, but yeah, I mean like Roy Orbison, yeah. Elvis, and Johnny Cash. Like these are like classic the stuff. Old, the old guys. I know. I'm excited to see what yeah. Natalie has and see how we're like covering all the different. <laughs> we are drastically awesome. Different. Yeah. Yeah. I think no, that's exciting. great. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna. I'll get through these speedily. My number five is Madonna, Ray of Light. Oh yeah. It turns 25 this year, so I got to give it its props. I feel like Ray of Light was Madonna's most significant, ambitious pivot in her whole career. Like, we're used to her changing up her concepts and her styles and stuff, but there was something really, I think, brave and, like, special about this particular era because she'd hooked up with, you know, legendary electronic producer William Orbit, and she put out these really silky, trippy, trancy dance tracks I just think it was next level for her, and this is when she really became a master of reinvention, you know? Frozen was a massive track. Definitely a curveball to lead with such an ethereal, melancholic ballad, you know, with the beautiful strings and the Moroccan influence and the percussion. And um, she had that gorgeous gothic visual in the Mojave Desert directed by Chris Cunningham. It was just, I'm telling you, I, well, the whole school, school was so much fun <laughs> when Ray of Light came yeah. out. <laughs> like everybody was going crazy over it. Let's see what else. I mean, Madonna's never been known for her voice, but I think coming off the filming mm -hmm. of Evita, this was the best her voice yeah. has ever mm -hmm. sounded. I feel like there was an era, when did this album come out? This was 98. Was there an era where like a lot of pop artists started to really go get like techno inspired and like incorporate a lot of electronic production? Is this around the same time that Cher was doing her, her that kind of stuff uh, with like auto-tune? Yes. Okay. That, yeah, this was like yeah, right on the brink it's of really that. It's really interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are other artists that, that were doing the same thing, but I feel like there was a period of time where like there was this like tronic, like techno inspired yes. production coming to mainstream. For sure. That was also 1998. Yeah. Oh, William Orbit was um, ah. in high demand, you know, when Ray of Light came out, for sure. Of course, this shift in sound was also heavily influenced by Madonna's foray mm. into Kabbalah. And it was her first release since becoming a mother. So the whole vibe was just dripping with this cosmic spiritual energy. Um, let's see, we had Ray of Light, which was, was an instant dance pop classic. Side note, did you know that Ray of Light is sort of a remake of a 1971 tune called Seferin by English folk duo Curtis Muldoon. What? I had no. no idea. It's like pretty much the lyrics are exactly the same. Huh. Wow. The tune's exactly the same. We'll play a little bit of it. Yeah. Seferin the sky at night I'll wander Do your tears of morning Sink beneath the sun So this album came out four years after Bedtime Stories, which is my other favorite Madonna era. So she was she was really rocking my world in the 90s. But I suspect Ray of Light will be the Madonna record that really stands the test of time, I think. Yeah, it was like way different. Like I, I agree, she pushed herself a little further out that time. And then I really enjoyed the one right after that, music. Because mm. it had- I liked music too. The song, music. People. Yeah. Oh, was that and, after Ray of Light? Yeah. Oh. And then Don't Tell Me What It Feels Like to Be a Girl. This whole 
era of Madonna is so good. Dude, she was killing it. Yeah. She, she didn't miss for a long, long time. Yeah. Natalie, do you see any overlap with this style and some of the like pop singers that are getting popular today? Like, I feel like I hear elements of this stuff and like stuff like Charlie. XCX? Yes. X, yeah, XCX. Oh, for and, sure. And, and like other, like, I don't know, maybe like Dua Lipa or I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't follow those artists as much, but I feel like I hear some elements of like the, from this album and like some modern music too. Yeah. Yeah. You're, de- you're definitely right. I feel like there was a period of time in pop, <laughs> maybe a decade ago, where like everyone was doing a dance remix with David Guetta yeah. or something like that. <laughs> everyone yeah. was kind of dipping their toes into the techno thing. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, so my number four is Fiona Apple, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Fetch the Bolt Cutters, I've been here too long. Fetch the Bolt Cutters, I've been here too long. Yes, so good. Such a good comeback. I'm so glad you said this one. Yep. She released this in 2020, eight years after her previous album, The Idler Wheel, which I also really loved. I loved that she announced this album on Instagram by spelling it out in sign language. <laughs> and that was just it. It's a pretty spectacular album, which is no small feat, like considering I think all her albums are pretty solid. Many critics called it her best work to date. Uh, the album won two Grammys, one for best alternative album and best rock performance for the lead single called Shamika. Shamika said I had potential. Shamika said I had potential. Shamika said I had potential. Uh, This album was recorded almost completely at her house during a period of time where she hardly ever left. Kindred spirits, she and I. (laughs) And then, of course, during the COVID quarantine. um, In an NPR interview, she explains how she believes her house is alive and she wanted to repay the house for taking her and her dog in by making it the music. Wow. So throughout the album, you hear lots of unconventional homemade percussion, you know, people marching through and chanting random sounds, dogs barking, who are credited <laughs> on the album for their contributions, by the way, which that, I love. That seems like a very Bjork thing to say. <laughs> Not, yeah. I would expect that from I know, Bjork. right? Yeah. I think uh, Fiona, they, they're kind of cut from a similar cloth. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Those two. Another favorite track of mine on that album is Heavy Balloon. I spread like strawberries. I climb like peas and beans. I've been sucking it in so long that I'm busting it. I like how her voice is so dynamic. Like she, she has, she can be really, really soft and kind of sing like in an upper register in her head voice and kind of purr. But then she can get really strong and gritty and growly when she wants to. And uh, you just kind of get you got you get the whole gamut of her range in this album. And I think it's really great. Yeah, I love yeah. "Under the Table." That one's my favorite. Yeah, from this that's album, a good I one think. too. "Under the Table" relay is another one I love. It's a great album. I it think is. there's just this like organic creativity and freedom in the way it came together that like perfectly matches the theme she had of like not being afraid to speak, breaking out of whatever prison you've allowed yourself to live in, you know? So yeah. Well done, Miss Apple. She's, I love her so much. Yeah. She's super cool. All right. Number three, I have a tribe called quest. We got it from here. Thank you for your service. We don't believe you, cause we the people are still here in the rear, yo, we don't need you. You ain't a killing off good young nigga move. When we get hungry, we eat the same fucking food, the ramen noodle. 
So oh God, I love this one. Yeah, this is a double album released in 2016, nearly two decades after their previous album, The Love Movement, in 98. And it's also the final album from these hip-hop titans who brought us, you know, Can I Kick It, Electric Relaxation, Benita Applebaum, just like tons and tons of, of classics. Definitely one of my favorite groups of all time. Uh, sadly, member Fife Dog passed away about five months into recording. So, you know, the album became a, it became a farewell that was even more significant, you know, farewell in sense of the group and also the passing of this member. So the remaining members, Q-Tip, DJ Ali Shaheed Muhammad and Jerobi White invited some longtime collaborators to step in and fill in the gaps. Um, for example, let's hear a bit of their second single called Dis Generation, which features Busta Rhymes. Other guest appearances include Andre 3000, Kendrick Lamar, Kanye, Anderson Pac, Jack White, Consequence, and Elton John. So it is star studded, this record. <laughs> yeah, that mm -hmm. sounds amazing. Yeah. We the People is my favorite off this one. We the People, is that, that's got that Black Sabbath sample in there, right? Oh, does That's it? the Rocky That's one. Cool. I didn't. I yes. So. Yeah, yes. It's the first yes. single. Drum break from. Yeah, I dig that one. Stuff. Yeah. So what's really great about this album, it still sounds so distinctly tribe. 27 years, you know, these guys have been in the game and at the same time, just completely current and relevant against the backdrop of all the like social and political yeah. shit that was happening in 2016. <laughs> like this dropped days after the presidential election. So, you know, things were tense. Yeah. Um, but yet they still know how to like address complex themes of like racial inequality and injustice while maintaining this carefree, witty block party kind of vibe, which I've always loved about them. But I got to play, I got to play a little bit of my favorite track on the whole album. It's called Kids and it features Andre 3000. Well. So yeah, this was a huge success. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 album charts. Great way for these guys to to go out, I think. Yeah. I saw Tribe at Pitchfork also. It wasn't the same Pitchfork, right? Was it? That, that, uh, was it? For Slow Dive? I can't remember. I don't think it was. And Natalie, I, I remember hearing that album come out uh, or like being advertised and like being promoted. I totally slept on it. So I'm going to go add it to oh, my definitely. like must listen to list. It's good. <laughs> for sure. For sure. It's good All stuff. right. I'm at number two. Wow. I know. Already? Plowing through. Okay, this is D'Angelo, Black uh, Messiah. So Black Messiah, <laughs> yeah, December 2014, 14 years after his album Voodoo, the man drops an album in the middle of the night <laughs> with his band, The Vanguard, as well as uh, Pino Palladino, James Gadsden, and Questlove featuring. His story is really fascinating. Um, his fame and that whole, like, you remember that How Does It Feel era where yeah. people were just salivating <laughs> over him? <laughs> um, he got really weirded out by his popularity and his new status as a sex symbol. And he basically retreated into the shadows. It's weird. I feel like a lot of those really popular neo-soul acts from the 90s just could not deal with the fame. Like Lauryn Hill did the same thing. Like yeah. there's, a, there's a handful of them that just were like, eh, I don't know about this and just cut out completely. 
That's true, but, um, or they didn't really need to do anything else because they were still rolling in it after that all the success. <laughs> well, that too, but just 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 being so like viscerally turned off by fame and all the attention, like Dave Chappelle also. Mm. Yeah, it's just just a lot of really talented artists. I wonder how much of that was like the the music industry itself too. Like, I wonder if they were kind of pushing artists more to be like more what audiences wanted versus like promoting like who they were and like what they wanted to do. Like it was, I feel like I wonder if it was more of a toxic <laughs> industry back in uh, in that era versus I was going to say maybe it's less toxic these days, but I don't know if that's true either. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sure it was for sure toxic, especially to these artists who just had something really pure that they wanted to express. Yeah. And it had to be filtered through this, you know? Yeah. Money like, hungry, yeah. Yeah, it was like like earlier days, like they wanted you to be this product, more be a product that you could sold to people. And like, maybe that's eased up a little bit these days, but uh, I definitely get that vibe from the uh, earlier era of time. Yeah, definitely. So he returned home to Richmond and, you know, struggled with drugs and alcohol. Things kind of fell apart. Plans for a live album were scrapped. Funding for his next album was cut. Personal and business relationships fell apart. Then the DUI and the rehab and uh, then that infamous mugshot circulated of him not looking too great. And then uh, on top of it all, he was in a near fatal car crash, breaking half his ribs. So he was really going through it. But throughout that time, he was he'd been recording and like really hustling and, and he did it. He put together this amazing album. The first single is called Really Love. It's this gorgeous mix of hip hop, swing, flamenco. It's got that sample from... Curtis Mayfield's song, We the People Who Are Darker Than Blue. And like the production on this track just blows my mind. I don't know how they got it to sound so smooth. The mixer, Russell Elevato, like there's some interviews with him online where he talks about the creation of this album. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, he's he's a Grammy Award winning engineer. He's been in the game a long time. But like, for example, in the liner notes, it says that no digital plugins of any kind were used in the recording. All of the recording processing effects and mixing was done in the analog domain using tape and mostly vintage equipment. And reportedly, about 200 reels of 24-track tape was used. Like, do the math on that. Like, that wow. budget has to just be... <laughs> It's a lot in of outer space. patience, too, for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it does just, seem rather <sighs> tedious. It's insane, but it completely paid off. Like, he achieved this 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 mellow, warm sound. I just, it blows my mind when I listen to it. It's it's something else. I don't know. Um, yeah. The New York Times said that Black Messiah, quote, captured American unrest through the studio murk of Sly Stone, the fervor of Funkadelic, and the off-kilter grooves somewhere between Jay Dilla and Captain Beefheart. Mm. <laughs> Interesting range, yeah. I know, right? I, lo- I love a lot, of those artists. A lot of a lot of stuff in there. A lot of prints in there too, with all the um, yeah, the multi-track vocals. Uh, here's a little bit of the second single that I really love. It's called "Betray My Heart." And yeah, in 2016, this won the Grammy for Best R&B Album. So. This was really like a rising from the ashes story for D'Angelo. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you put this one on here. It's on my short list. So (laughs) I'm so glad that you covered it, D'Angelo. It's just (laughs) such a a fascinating story. Except for like, I'm sorry, how could you not know you were going to be a sex symbol when you put that video out like that? (laughs) I mean, true that. You were naked and you worked out for it a lot. (laughs) 
Yeah, he was doing a lot in that video, like, <laughs> had the whole world thirsting. What did you expect? I know. <laughs> what did you expect? Maybe I, maybe he just wasn't expecting that much, but still. Oh, I'm sure. Like, what's the big it, deal? It, it happened, making... like, overnight, right? <laughs> what's the big deal? I'm just over here, like, seductively licking my lips and He's just like, this is, this is how I normally am. Uh, I'm just like <laughs> I mean, this. Not to mention his body just looked like... An actual chisel to the gods, or something. <laughs> right? Like it's ridiculous. How? Yeah, but yeah, I, I can imagine it's probably a bit of a it screws with your mind when you have that yeah. kind of attention on you all of a sudden. Yeah. All right. Well, this is going to be easy because my number one is also Tina Turner, Private <gasps> Dancer. <laughs> no oh, way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think we covered pretty much everything. Um, I mean, I'll say it remains her best-selling album in the United States. It was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry. Oh. Yeah. Sadly, Tina Turner passed away this year, just a few months ago, May 24th. But what what a life, what a legacy, what an amazing, amazing. pair of legs. Love her. Yes, amazing pair of legs. <laughs> oh, she gives me chills just thinking about her. Oh, she's so yeah. wonderful. That's it. That is my top five. I love nice. it. Excellent. Yeah, Yay. so much range between all of these totally, lists. Totally, yeah. It's fantastic. It's so good. Quickly, let's do our honorable mentions. Keep going, Natalie. All right. I had uh, Portishead Third. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chibomato, Hotel Valentine, Mariah Carey, The Emancipation of Mimi, just because she saved herself from that whole glitter debacle and came back. That's true. <laughs> really great. <laughs> um, yeah, those are my top ones. I have Aphex Twin, Cyro, mm -hmm. and That was what I was going to do. <laughs> really? And D'Angelo, Black Messiah. Nice. What about you? Carlos? Yeah. What else you got? Yeah, I had Cyro as well. And then I was going to talk about Refused, their comeback album, Freedom, as being a kind of a letdown, <laughs> but being a notable <laughs> comeback album from a notable band. I love it. Awesome. Sweet. We have stayed in this store for far too long. We need to close it down. Well, before we go... Um, if you could, our special guest, please come to the intercom and let the folks in the store know how can they hear your oh, yes. music. Oh, yeah. Good call. The best way to hear my music right now is probably to go on Bandcamp, bandcamp.com slash navigator. I've also got music on SoundCloud and I have a few albums uploaded to Spotify. If you're a Spotify user, those would be the best ways to hear my stuff. And spell that for us because I know you've got a, a Yeah, I, I spell it a different way than it sounds. Uh, so uh, N-A-V-I-G. A-T-E-U-R. So just kind of spell the last part like French. A, a French person might. <laughs> right. But, Navigate but pronounce it like, I guess, an American would. I don't know what I was doing when I gave myself that. I think it's super cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. That. And I love your music. I've been checking it out on, on South oh, and Camp as well. So, awesome. Yeah. Appreciate Great that. Great stuff. And now I also need to check out the remix from that Ariel. Oh, yeah. That you, you did. Yep. Very cool. Firefly remix. And then there's another one for Cloudburst. So two remixes. Nice. Oh, nice. Excellent. Yes, and we will also put links to your material on our store website and Instagram and socials and et cetera. Plus, we hang out in Discord when we're not in the store. So if anyone wants to hang out, chat, tell us your top five comeback albums or whatever else. We also have channel in our Discord for self-promotions, shameless self-promotion. So come chat yeah, and we want to hear what you're us. doing. Yeah. Definitely. Share your tunes. We Some like Some recommendations. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. 
Cool. It's Let's been fantastic up. having you. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Cool to talk with you. This, it was a fun conversation. Yeah, this was super fun. I hope I hope it was okay. <laughs> like Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, this was super fun. Thanks again for for having me. Always happy to chat music. Thank you for hanging out with us in the store. Let's lock up and go home. Awesome. It's See you guys later. Good yeah. night, everybody. See you later. Bye. Bye. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.